0: Stock trading takes place across a variety of software platforms. ETrade and Schwab have allowed individual traders to buy securities for decades. Robinhood built a business around a similar model, but also removed the commission. Wealthfront and Betterment provide robo-advisor services that abstract away the underlying securities and focus on managing a risk profile. Each of these different financial services has a programmatic execution system for managing assets. In order for a developer to build a product like Robinhood or Wealthfront, that developer needs access to an API that can execute trades. Alpaca is an API for stock trading. Alpaca can be used to build financial products, apps, and algorithmic trading programs. Yoshi Yokokawa is the founder of Alpaca, and he joins the show to talk about why he built an API for trading and the potential applications of Alpaca. Yoshi's background includes work in finance at Lehman Brothers, A period spent as an individual day trader, and a previous company that he started selling custom trading algorithms to enterprises. Yoshi was an awesome guest, and he has such an interesting background. It makes a lot of sense that he would end up building Alpaca, and it's fascinating to hear about the potential of an API for stock trading. Yoshi Okakawa, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You worked at Lehman Brothers for four and a half years before the firm fell apart, and you were working with some mortgage risk assets. Did you anticipate
1: any of the problems that led to the 2008 collapse? We've been seeing a lot of uh, default rates going up, and all those uh, interest key metrics, you know, getting worse and worse. So we kind of knew what was happening, but nobody really thought that it was going to have it happening. Because, like, you know, the data that any professionals have is, like, 70, 80 years. You don't know what happened before that. So, like, you know, nobody thinks that in our lifetime that's going to happen. So, we're like, hey, it's happening. But, like, there's money and people still buying it. So, like, we're just pushing it. Even though, like, you know, you understand there's just something wrong that's happening. Did that experience change your perspective on risk or perhaps tail risk? Definitely. From that point, I realized that I really don't trust anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so which means like I always think about the risk when I do anything at all. So that may not be actually a good thing to be in a CEO of a startup because I think about the risk too much. But yes, it did change my perspective about the long tail risk because it exists. I hear what you're
0: saying. I used to be a poker player. I played played poker back in the day, online poker, and then the online poker market completely crashed, and it scared me at a really, really deep level because one minute I had this career that was great, really fun, good money, complete flexibility, and then the market evaporated overnight, and it scared me. I've never gotten over that, and it fills you with the kind of paranoia that is in some ways unproductive, but probably does protect you from certain things that other people might set themselves up for.
1: Yeah, I think it does definitely affect how we're building Alpaca. Like a lot of problems that we want to solve is extremely technical and extremely like software side, but at the same time that's very much connected to the financial services and that is extremely regulated, which we need to really protect it in, you know, very many ways, like you know having doing the boring things. So, yeah, that, that does affect it, even what we are doing right now.
0: When the market fell apart, did you think about leaving finance completely at that point?
1: Definitely, I did. You know, maybe like you felt the same thing, but like I felt extremely empty. So, what was I doing with this, like you know, all the billions of dollars <laughs> that I was doing? So all, all that
0: uh, core competency of knowing how to manage credit default swaps yeah. and
1: derivatives. You're like, well, this is useless now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I actually felt like lost confidence about this uh, financial services in general. So I actually became more interested in like, you know, actually like, you know, more physical stuff. Like I study a lot to be a personal gym trainer after that because I wanted to be extremely like, you know, genuine to what it is as a human instead of like, you know, dealing with the numbers and the finance. So I did go through that kind of phase. You know, I continued like one more year because my boss was a really great guy and I wanted to, you know, kind of pay back to him in a way for his trust. But, you know, right after that one year, I left the industry. And you eventually became a full-time trader at some point after
0: that, though. Like, so you went from, I guess, more of a spreadsheet managing risk kind of person to an actual in the weeds, setting up trades, like managing your portfolio trades. What was that transition like? And what were the best and worst parts of being a trader?
1: Well, starting from best and worst thing in trader is best is like you're like a poker player. You feel like you are in control of what you do. 120 percent. Worst thing is that it's extremely stressful and very very scary and the reason why i went there is because that is the only thing that i was able to do by myself after working in finance for four and a half years i was you know backed by big names of the investment bank but without that i was nothing no one so we i thought fx foreign exchange day trading is the place that every single person on the earth can participate not much of the regulation no pattern day trading rule so it's like a street fight so I wanted to see how we can I can fight in the street fight without those names. So that was the reason why. And also like I had to take care of my grandma at home. So that was the basically the only thing that I was able to do at that time.
0: Were you working from home? Were
1: you totally on your own or were you working for a firm? I was doing totally at home, living uh, only with my grandma, cooking three meals a day because she's getting, uh, what is that? Like you know, losing her memories Alzheimer's and everything. Yeah, yeah, dementia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.
0: So you were doing Forex trading by yourself yeah. what's the biggest this is you know we'll get to software eventually but <laughs> I, I, you know forex that's always something that's that's intrigued me because i know you the swings can be huge in forex and you really have to i mean it's like no limit like you you can really bust yourself out or have huge upswings what is the biggest like downswing or upswing percentage of your portfolio that you can have on a given day
1: i mean you could lose a lot right because like you know, I'm taking the leverage of like you know twenty five or thirty times of my actual assets, so even you know a few percent really doesn't happen in the FX world. But if you had the position there, like you know, you almost lose. You could almost lose like you know more than hundred percent. Obviously, it's like a, you can think of it like more the crypto trading, and but like you know, crypto now has like lower leverage. But FX, always allows me to trade more higher uh, higher leverage
0: when you saw the crypto trading take off was there any temptation did
1: you start to get the itch you're like oh god i know this game oh yeah definitely (laughs) i actually did like you know even though like you know i was like i didn't sit down and like do the day trading but like even because i i'm so used to day trading right right and crypto movement is so simple compared to fx so i was just you know doing even on my phone it was enough to make money so yeah i was doing that a little bit when there was uh, enough volatility Of course, eventually I completely stopped because I got too busy.
0: Did you recognize the same like behavioral patterns or like, I'm guessing Forex had more programmatic infrastructure, more big players, there's more liquidity. So probably the crypto was a lot softer because a lot of it was actual
1: humans that had just had no idea what they were doing yeah because there's less sophisticated investors and players in the crypto space the movement actually became much simpler because the the movement of the price is extremely correlated to the human behavior you know being scared and like you know being tempted and the institutional investors basically take advantage of that human behavior and make money Mm -hmm. so if there's less of those the movement of the price becomes simpler what was your path from being a trader to building software? You know, after doing the day trading by myself three years, I eventually kind of burned out in a way that I wanted to work with someone. And being day trading is extremely solo stuff. And I miss like, you know, working with the people that I can fully trust. So that was the way for me to really go into the software side since my, a lot of my friends were in the you know, computer science. And also at that point, like, you know, because I was doing the repetitive task in the day trading, so I was using, you know, things called MQL, which is a meta trader software, you know, kind of automation software lines is specifically for the FX trading. So I was writing those things. And, you know, automation definitely is the key. I should not be here if the, you know, automation is there. So that's when I realized that, you know, I really have to 120% focus on this. And you started out co-founding
0: something called Alpaca Japan, is that right? Correct. And then later you founded Alpaca in the U.S., which is the company you're building now. Yeah. Can you tell me about Alpaca Japan? What is that?
1: Actually, we started it, only one Alpaca, in 2015, And we started building, like you know, basically basic technology. In order to automate things, you needed to build specific database and the you know processing engine for that. So we were doing that, and we got a lot of uh, inquiries from the big banks and you know trading firms if they can use those technology that involve like you know deep neural nets prediction and stuff like that. So we actually started making money from that business, which something that we were not originally expecting the business to go. So, you know, we started that and we pushed a little bit because it was profitable. But then like we always had this problem that we wanted to solve, which was the things that I personally felt pain for is this brokerage space and you know trading investing space for individuals and small guys that was just not there yet. And so in order to move there, we had to split the companies in two. And basically we spun off the enterprise business into the different group of operators and we named that as alpaca japan and now what we do is like you know just alpaca and it's being alpaca but like you know it just took us some time to actually get to the problem that we originally wanted to solve Mm. so
0: the products around alpaca that you're building now Mm -hmm. that is api infrastructure for executing trades You know the really boilerplate, I think overly reductive description would be like a Twilio for trading or a Stripe for trading. And I want to get into that a little bit later. But Alpaca Japan, that was more about, as you said, like data collection and finding trends
1: using machine learning? Correct. We still do at Alpaca Japan. I wouldn't say we because I'm not really a part of it, but they use a lot of deep neural nets prediction model to basically detect the trends and uh, uh, predict the prices and a lot of dealer desks at the banks or commodity trading firms use that prediction models to you know enhance their p l.
0: How durable were those prediction models? Did they just change all the time and you constantly had to have engineers like reworking the
1: models? Yeah definitely so like you know they use a lot of new data, not only the market data that's publicly available. But the data also from the firms specifically that see the flow on their desks. So they use extremely priority data for each of the, their clients so that it's all different. But it's all based on this uh, specific platform of the prediction model that we built. Wow. And okay, that so gets customized. So the
0: training process, the training algorithms were pretty durable. You just had to rebuild the models on new data all the time? Correct. Wow. That's great. Yeah, it is a cool technology. How were you able to do that successfully? Because I would just imagine that business would just get destroyed in the, in the limit by whatever, Goldman Sachs, Citadel, these other players who have so many more engineers devoted Jane Street to like destroying the market in terms of programmatic trading. How were you, as a smaller shop, able to create learning algorithms that were good enough to
1: compete with the bigger players? So I think not all of the big financial institutions have that understanding of utilizing technology in the right way, fortunately or unfortunately. And there are very many different asset classes around the globe where very niche players are actually doing very well. So, you know, for example, one of the asset classes that we really, you know, did really well is like spe- specifically like foreign exchange, but specifically like, you know, dollar yen pair, U.S. dollar, Japanese yen pair. And, you know, Goldman Sachs obviously is not the biggest liquidity provider in that currency pair. And, you know, the one of the Japanese banks is. So which means they have much more data and, the, and we specifically built our model for that. Based on the using appropriately, like it's actually open source, you know, database called Market Store, processing that data as, as fast as possible using different type of the data, using the proprietary data they only have. I so see. that creates a very different, you know, type of the models, and also you know the the duration of the profit that they want to make is also very diverse mm-hmm. based on each financial institutions. For dealer desks, like you know that deal with a lot of flow coming in you know, their duration is extremely, extremely, like, you know, short. Mm-hmm. But like you know, most of the hedge funds, like in you know, a lot of quant hedge funds, the long short equities, you know, obviously it's much longer horizon. So right. it's a very many different types of data utilization.
0: Right. And so I guess you're saying this is why this is an enterprise business. It doesn't really s- like scale super well, because if you're selling a training algorithm for trading yen dollar pair, specifically to a bank of Japan, that's like a very customized integration that you're building just for them. That's great. They're going to give you a big bucket of money and you will never be able to sell that algorithm to anybody else. Correct.
1: Correct. So like, you know, we need to think about like, you know, how much of it can be generalized and how much of it needs to be always customized to actually create good prediction. So that is a balance of, uh, you know, balancing out the actual true technology and balancing out, the business because everything is customized. You're not going to be able to make business. Right. Right. So eventually you realize,
0: oops, we're in a consultancy. Yeah. And you started to think about what are the more generalizable products that we can build that don't look like a consultancy. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and how'd you arrive at Alpaca? So at that time, like, you know, originally we started Alpaca. So I had, I had a per- my personal pain, right? Like I knew how it was like to be an individual investor or trader to seriously use some kind of trading or investor platform that's out there through what my were you day using. Interactive career. brokers or something? I was using uh, because like I was doing FX, I was mainly using this platform called MetaTrader mm. and using multiple number of the brokerages including interactive brokers. So but that I knew there was an extreme pain there and problem there. And at the same time, while doing that, the business, enterprise business that we were doing, we tried to make them more generalized so that it can be applicable to the individual use cases. So we built this web application based on those know-how that we built. Simultaneously, we are executing those enterprise businesses. And in order to provide that to the retail customers, in order to create the value for that new application, we needed to integrate into some kind of broker-dealers Because as a web application, it just prediction doesn't connect directly to your actual execution of the trade. So I've talked with a lot of a lot of broker dealers out there. Okay, can we connect this application to your system so that your end users can use this automatically? And we had extremely difficult time even getting access to API documents and even getting approval of using that is another like you know 3 months to even see the documentation another 6 months or something to get approval to actually connect into the API doc. So that's what we see okay this is a tr- true pain here not as only individual users trying to dis- use this thing but even below that is application providers or something who want to build something even going to build something and that is a big barrier for the application you know developers to you know, create some innovation. So back in the day when
0: you were an FX trader, you were using a tool called MetaTrader. Yes. MetaTrader had API hooks into, like, interactive
1: brokers and other programmatic brokerages? So they sold their whole package of the system Uh to each of the brokers instead of, like, connecting that with the API. So they sold a software license business. Instead of like, you know, it's connected over cloud. So that broker-dealers buys MetaTrader system on the broker dealer's server. Huh. And they're basically saying, you as a
0: broker, we're going to give you access to the customer base that uses our UI. Yeah, basically. exactly. Exactly. And so there were a bunch of broker-dealers that were
1: plugged into MetaTrader. So that's a really weird... Yeah, I wouldn't say plugged into. There are a lot of broker-dealers that both metatrader system in their broker dealer servers
0: okay i'm having trouble understanding because you as the individual trader sitting at home you're working with metatrader yeah it's a metatrader
1: interface Uh that's been provided by broker dealers
0: oh okay i see so so you had like so there's a different interface for each of the broker dealers that you work with
1: they they all, all have the same Interface, but like called a Meta trader but a different website or like a different program. Exactly, it can be like in you know MetaTrader broker dealer name dot com, MetaTrader broker dealer B name dot com. Oh. But it's exactly same. Oh my god! Functions. So you have like six different tabs open in Chrome, and you yeah, tab yeah, yeah. between them to yeah, yeah. execute
0: your different trades across different broker dealers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, and so I guess eventually when you were searching for the product to build you came across the understanding or you had the insight that something weird going on here what is the relationship between the broker dealer and the ui and that led you to the conclusion that this infrastructure is brittle monolithic has not been turned into open apis correct and just to ask the naive question, why does that matter? Like, why? what would be different in the world if there were more open API infrastructure between, for example, broker
1: dealers and the UI that interfaces with the broker dealer? Right, that's a great question. While I was doing day trading, obviously I saw the big success of the Robinhood. And I think that how Robinhood did so well is that they proved by changing the user experience and target a specific group of the people who needed that, there was a strong demand. And there are so many types of the different groups that are not served yet. And because financial services touches every single person, seven billion people on the earth, there's no way one type of the interface satisfies every single group that lives on this earth. Therefore, if you are able to personalize, if you are able to create some kind of right experience for each of the targeted groups, that can be always like hundred X better than what it is right now, and that's been proved by Robinhood. So we thought, okay, this is something that can be done not for the U.S. millennials who is mobile first. That can be done, you know, for example, Japan. It's an aging population, targeted specifically seventy years old, eight years old interface or experience that doesn't make like that may not involve even mobile but there has to be some kind of customization that has been specifically targeted that audience and same thing as the us like there are many types of the groups and developers are one of them and millennials are one of them and you know just so so many different group and the buckets that needs to be targeted in a more personalized way Hmm.
0: okay so alpaca is an api for trading stocks describe the different use cases
1: for a stock trading API? Sure. The biggest use case that we're seeing, the fastest one is directly trading through API. So that people just like me used to be a you know manual day trader. If you want to automate that with some kind of you know bots or algorithms, you need to use API. So you automate things by language whatever that you you use and you trade directly through that. So that is the of course the one use case as an individual. And another is building some kind of applications on top of that. So, if you see, like, specifically, even like algorithmic trading, you need to do like, you know, back testing, you need to do some kind of analysis, you need to, you know, suck into a bunch of the data into the platform. But there are not much many good applications around that. So, one developer wants to build that kind of application, it needs to be connected directly to the broker dealer API so that his or her end users can use it automatically. And if it's not connected to the broker-dealer, OK, every, all the analysis and the, everything, data analysis is automated. But OK, now I'm going to click this thing based on the output that it gave me automatically. <sighs> it's it just is ridiculous, right? So of right. course, it should be connected. And so that is another use case. So a like bunch of the investing application, trading applications need to rely on broker-dealers' automatic integration to actually provide the normal experience to their end users, and the third is what we are seeing is that you know even existing financial institutions outside United States wanted to pull in the U.S. stock trading to their end users, and that needs to be connected somehow through their API. And you know now you know those financial institutions don't have to be traditional like you know brokers, but also any super apps that's uh, trying to you know bundle a bunch of the financial services into one app. And they tend to be a lot of uh, software developers and who look for a modern API to do that.
0: Let's take the first use case. I'm a random developer. I like Python. I want to just write my own algorithms to trade in Python. Alpaca would be a good API that I could use for that situation. That is correct. There must be a company that has offered
1: that kind of product before, right? Of course. And you know this better, API is a big word you provide something you provide some application and you just open your api interface but it doesn't mean that you're building api product Mm. there are a lot of components around that okay do you have sdks do you have a community that's supporting that Mm. that documentation is updated and like you know is it really taken care of as a your main core product Mm, mm. is a very different value prop and so when you're
0: looking at the market if we're just talking about one specific use case like i'm a random developer i want programmatic apis for trading if you look at the market what was the best product like when you you know look at document if you you know take the aggregate of it documentation community all the things that go into a good api
1: like was there anything out there that was satisfactory so before us it's probably interactive brokers and they do offer API with a lot of complexity. I've been to their yeah. website. It looks like it's from like two thousand four or something. Like it's an old,
0: old looking website.
1: Yes. I think they started it early nineties. One of those uh, online brokers that started around that time, including E-Trade and you know, TDMA Trade and those guys.
0: Wow. Okay. So that seems like a good opportunity. But in order to actually provide that API, you need to establish relationships. With these other broker-dealers, right? Mm, Or? Or you paper over their API infrastructure.
1: Or you become the broker-dealer. Oh, okay. Yourself.
0: I see. And that's what Robinhood did, right? And that's what we did, too. Got it. So another way of looking at the business is you are like Robinhood, but... The good UX that you're providing is an API infrastructure UX, not a beautiful looking mobile app. Correct. Very cool, and and then you've also like built your own products on top of that API, which almost like pr- kind of proves or it, that's that's a good way of dogfooding it, right? Like you've built your own trading interface
1: on top of your broker dealer API infrastructure. We actually try to do that a lot, including like mobile app to just yeah exactly showcase and make the sample code so that, you know, people can start off from something that's already there. So it's open source. Yeah. We should actually define this term because I'm not sure I even fully understand it. Broker dealer. What does that mean? Broker dealer is the financial entity that's been regulated by the FINRA which controls and basically monitors all the trade activity and protects the U.S. securities market, making sure that there's no insider trading, there's no like criminal money going in. So you have to be a member of, of the FINRA to be a broker-dealer.
0: Okay, and aside from regulatory constraints, what does it actually mean? Like, let's say I, I'm using the Alpaca API to write my Python script, you know, to buy Apple, you know, I want to buy Apple every time Apple stock is like, let's just say a very simple example. I've got an, a Python script that's running all the time. And every time Apple stock drops 5%, I want to buy 10 shares. Okay. That's something I can do with Alpaca, right? Of course. Okay. So if I've got that script running on my computer and I, let's say Apple stock drops 5%, I execute that programmatic trade. It hits your, API server, what happens
1: next? So I think, like, you know, going back to the question before, what is a broker dealer? Yeah. I guess, like, the simplest way is the people or institutions that can sell stocks. That's a broker dealer. So we have a license to sell you stocks. And if you don't have a license, you can sell stocks. And we have a license because we are broker dealer. So how we sell it can be, you know, anything, right? Any way. Robinhood decided to do it through mobile to sell you stocks. We decided to use API to sell you stocks. And
0: the fulfillment process is basically like you can look out at the market from other people that you could buy the stock from and or look at your own portfolio. And you just have to make sure that the bookkeeping lines up and voila, you can execute trades.
1: Yeah, there. Yeah, there's so many, so many things that we're doing. It's pretty boring, though. <laughs> <laughs> indulge me. Indulge me. Give me a little bit of the board. OK, OK, OK. Yeah. Like, you know, including what you just said, Jeff, like, you know, those accounting stuff and also what's called anti money laundering, know your customer policy. So like we need to define who you are. So we need to get all the, you the know, social security number and everything so that you actually exist. And you need to receive the money from you, your bank account. So we need to we need to make sure that all the monies are, you know, custody and uh, and there's a regulation to protect your money as well. So we need to make sure that it's compliant to that, and that we have to be connected to basically exchanges where the trades are filled, right? And the there's a, something called clearing, which is a clearing trade. Is that like if what you said you bought Apple stocks is actually admitted and authorized? by this central, you know, corporation that actually says that, yes, it is approved. So like you have to connect to that. And in order to be all compliant, we have to be sending the reports all the time to those regulations, regulators, and we get audited like, you know, almost like every month, basically like, you know, sending those reports uh, every month. So extremely hard work to even maintain this license to just sell you stocks. Hmm. What are the actions that I can take through the API? You can buy stocks, sell stocks, and you can basically get the real-time market data. And you can, of course, pull in the information where your position is, like how much money you have in your account, what is the total equity balance. Yeah, like, you know, all sorts of the things that you would see on the trading applications that you use with a graphical user interface.
0: When I think about the API companies out there, Twilio, for example, you know, API for telephony, the number of use cases that they actually solve is not that big. I mean, there's like two-factor authentication. They're your text message infrastructure if you want to text with your Uber driver. They're your phone call infrastructure if you need to call your Uber driver. That's about it. I mean, they do like video stuff too. I know they can build you like a, a call center and things like that, but like the core API infrastructure... As I understand, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's it's very hard to do well, but like the actual use cases are are kind of narrow and just by being the best in those narrow set of use cases, they've really built a very powerful business. I'm wondering if you see Alpaca, the, AP, the stock trading API, do you see this kind of like two-factor, the Twilio business where it's like mostly two-factor authentication, like you're mostly going to be doing stock trading for people who want to build stock trading APIs, like they want to build the next Robin Hood? Or do you see like some wider array of use cases? Is there, you know, people that are going to build really strange things that you're going to do with stock trading? Like every time I drive near a McDonald's, execute a McDonald's, buy order or something like that like you know every time i come near uh, you know a business of a certain type i want to execute a small order for that business just you know it's like programmatic behavioral yeah, by the way weird yeah, things you, like you that.
1: can do that through ifttt like we're connected to ifttt okay so yeah we can do that there but, you go yeah but but i think like you know how i think about what we do is not really stock trading api how we see this is really API to move financial assets from point A to point B, so it's not only even about trading or investing. So if you think about it's a stock trading API, all you think about is okay, so it's algo trading or like you know, let's build another the Robinhood. But when you think about moving assets one to A, it's like you know you can think of those things, right? Like you know, okay, if you go to McDonald's and you every time you do that, maybe McDonald's give you some kind of uh, stock rewards of McDonald's or something. Or it doesn't have to be actually stocks. What we're thinking, like our vision is to be really middleware for investing in general. And like eventually it would look like a Zapier in a way. Like you know, there's a bunch of the supplies of different type of the you know, assets or investment assets. And that can be connected to a bunch of the services in the app that they can do the checkboxes, okay, I'll do US stock investing. I'll also do, you know, fractional offerings of that things, music royalty or something. And, you know, this seed fund investing security or something like, you know, it can be anything. But like our really what we want to do is connect those things in a programmatic way so that it can be distributed to more people as possible. One of the painful things
0: about financial infrastructure, as I understand it right now, is. The transactions costs are just so high, and like that's one thing that's that was potentially interesting about crypto from the very early early days is like this idea of micro payments, right? You can make potentially, you know, you can transfer a nickel to somebody in Africa to do some micro task for you without a serious, seriously high transaction cost, and so like the use case of let's say every time I go to McDonald's. Or let's say I go to McDonald's 10 times a month, and McDonald's transfers me a little bit of stock to reward me. That's kind of a cool idea. It's I think it's too expensive to do today because the execution infrastructure costs too much money. Is that correct? Or are the transactions costs going down?
1: Actually, transaction costs is not expensive. It's doable. But what would be very difficult to do if the McDonald's try to do it by themselves is even to... Make it achieve that thing by holding all the compliance and regulation because, like, you know, holding securities means you have to move the money from point A to B and actually convert that with, you know, stocks. And, you know, that has to be stored somewhere. Mm-hmm. And maintaining that whole thing is a lot of money. And that's basically being a broker dealer and a burden. So, us basically wanted to want to be the background behind the C player if that kind of thing's happening. And we don't have to be front face of that, but we take care of all those boring stuff on no end. Right. Yeah.
0: If we were to push this terrible app idea even further, I mean, Starbucks actually has like a pretty good mobile app. Yeah. So like if you go to Starbucks 25 times a month, maybe they transfer you a little bit of stock. Yep. Since you actually have a mobile app in the Starbucks case, maybe they can just add something to the terms and conditions. Uh, by the way, Starbucks is also, you know, an investment firm, and you are opening essentially a
1: brokerage account by downloading the Starbucks app. Yep, is that possible? Yes, definitely possible. And by the way, I think Starbucks, in terms of the assets under management on the money, is like tenth or something, right? In in the U.S. in terms of the money that really, yeah, users have as a Starbucks points of money. Really? It's a humongous amount of money. Whoa. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's definitely something that probably a lot of uh, players, including Starbucks, probably will go into becoming a fintech, utilizing that, even try to, archive the money in their ecosystem, they can start providing maybe some kind of interest payment. But I guess maybe they they already do it by themselves, but like, you know, they can start sharing a little bit. They can, you know, provide some kind of uh, stocks investing on that, like robot advising on that, you know. Those kind of things would be definitely possible.
0: Whoa. Okay, let's push this a little bit further. So I want to, let's talk a little bit about the future of fintech stuff. So that idea that you're talking about Starbucks being in the top 10 of holding assets, is that li- literally like people saying, reload my Starbucks app with $25? Cause that's the freaking, that's the default. When you re. I know, cause I've gotten a lot of Starbucks with the app. You go to reload, it's like default is $25. I'm like, do I really need $25 in my Starbucks account? Like, all right, whatever. It's the default fine, like fingerprint ID. <laughs> I approve, whatever. I'll get enough coffee to justify yeah, it. Yeah. It's kind of devious, yeah, that's yeah. way more money than yeah, you need.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're basically transferring the money from bank A to bank B. Right. And the bank B happens to be in a way Starbucks. And they're holding your money there. And you know, because they're holding your money, maybe they can sell you other financial products. And that's what's happening in any financial services, right? Like you know, Uber started driving and Uber started Uber Cash and started Uber Cards. And in order to like, you know, maintain the customers, create the ecosystem, they can definitely do Uber Invest, Uber Insurance, selling some insurance products. You know, then that anything that touches you in terms of money can stay in the lifestyle app that you use the most. Have, can be Starbucks, can be you know, Airbnb, can be you know, Lyft or Uber, whatever do it is. Do as a
0: consumer, need financial products from all these different companies?
1: That's a very good question. And I also question that, too. I think there's two (laughs) ways of the answers that I can answer that. One is that as a corporation, you want to do that because that enhances the stickiness of your product because you're providing money related products. If you have money somewhere in your app, you don't want to delete the app. And if the money stays there and if you convert that thing into some kind of a mutual funds in the app, probably you don't want to delete the app. So that's very much the intention of the corporation side of the thing. But as a user perspective, I'm not sure if it's a right future. So I think it's going to be a lot of consolidation and people start realizing that, okay, if it's really worth doing that kind of thing by the uh, corporation side of the thing. But as of right now, I think the logic of the corporations pushing this trend to be every lifestyle applications becoming a fintech. Like, it makes sense for
0: QuickBooks, for example. Like, I log into QuickBooks, and it's like, do you want a loan? I'm like, not really, not today, (laughs) but thanks for asking. (laughs) And if the business goes belly up, like, maybe I will come to QuickBooks for a loan. It would make sense that QuickBooks would have a lot of data on me and would be able to give me a good loan. But I think in the case of QuickBooks, actually, they use, like, a white label, right? Like, there's some provider of loan underwriting or Mm -hmm. something. Like, Mm -hmm. that infrastructure already exists
1: Yeah, for that you can connect to the banking API, Uh and you know the data goes directly to the those uh, regional banks that's connected through the API, and the regional bank can issue you a loan that way. So shifting back to Alpaca, what are
0: the use cases that you've seen most frequent? So from your user base, what are people doing with Alpaca?
1: Definitely the algorithmic trading that they do, directly trading automatically. And two is building trading application, like in building like actual manual user interface or backtesting interface of your algorithm. And the third is, okay, wanting to build Robin Hood in country A, country B, country C type of the use case.
0: Right, 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 right. Let's go through some of those. So the algorithmic trading example, what kinds of algorithmic trading are we talking about we're we talking about literally like the example i gave like apple
1: drops five percent i want to buy some that would be pretty rare i think more people like you know looking at the how the prices moved. like you know what i used to doing the fx trading and you know do that automatically using stocks and use stocks there's like 7600 stocks instead of you know 20 currency pairs that you can trade so there are many things that you can do so you know automation makes more sense that way
0: don't most of the algorithmic trading strategies
1: involve options? Actually, no, for probably individual levels. Automating option trading becomes even more sophisticated and difficult considering what metrics that you need to see because of the type of the options that you need to trade, like you know, expiration. So it's not only the like, you know, two axes of the thought process that you do, price movement and time. Mm-hmm. You know, option becomes much more complicated. So like, automating that is very, very hard actually automating
0: that as a back end like automating that from your point of view like uh, that would be difficult to provide
1: no no as a user standpoint oh, from a user standpoint yeah so i think like you know of course hedge funds do that because like you know they have enough resource to really suck in all those data and actually make that into the algorithms but if you're an individual that's a very very high bar of course like we're going to be providing options you know near future but the persons who can actually utilize that will not be very many. Just because the strategies are too complex? Exactly. Huh. So
0: the people who are doing programmatic trading with Alpaca, their strategies are literally like, I've got this algorithm, like where maybe based on like they could be using those, what are those candlestick charts, right? They could say I've got like, if, if you see these 10 candlestick patterns, or these, you know, this this pattern of 10 candlesticks, that's an indication that the stock is about to pop. And in
1: that moment, I want to buy. That's definitely the one use case that you can think about in terms of when we say algorithmic trading. But algorithmic trading or automation of trades also is like a robo-advisor thing. Mm. Weekly rebalancing, mm. monthly rebalancing based of your risk profile. So that's also part of the use case for that specific trade automation. Oh, wow. So I want
0: to build my own robo-advisor. Correct. Ooh.
1: Without using those ETFs and like, you know, just specifically Ooh. use your own process.
0: Ooh, that's cool. Yeah, because most of those, like Wealthfront, they're mostly buying Vanguard funds, right? Yes. Just like the ETF, Van, Vanguard's yeah. done really well over time, let's just be a better interface for how we buy Vanguard. And that seems fairly coarse-grained. The backtesting example, why do you need a trading API for backtesting? Isn't backtesting just
1: basically all you need is historical data, right? Historical data and doing the backtesting means that you don't do that for fun, right? You do backtesting so that you can now do live testing. You know what I mean? Doing the backtesting itself is not the solution. It's the beginning of the solution to actually solve the problem of test what you built you check with the back testing and you have to of course do the live testing to make sure it's working, regardless of the candlestick example or rebalancing example. And if it's not connected to the live brokerage account or like in brokerage API, how can you actually test it in a live environment? Oh in a I simultaneous, see. like smoother way.
0: I see. So if my main trading workflow was through an interactive brokers and maybe i just want to b- write some scripts to test what i'm doing i could use alpaca to just test with like some small one off trades mm. is that, that yeah. that's the workflow you're describing
1: yeah so like you know you, you write scripts and like you know, let's say how it works in the i don't know 5 years 10 years of the you know whatever the data that you have and you want to directly copy and paste and like you know, start running with the live testing uh-huh. and to see if it's not like you know over optimized based on the some kind of backtest historical data you never like you know do backtesting and okay this is working. Mm. You do backtesting and see like you know how it works. It, like it's same th- same thing as like data science problem, right? Because you optimize create your algorithms based on a certain set of the data group A, mm. and you test that with this unknown data B to make sure sure that like you know, it's actually working. Mm. So that's how it works in this. I think investing and trading is the simple check is to test the previous historical data, which is data A. And you want to test with the unknown data, which is a future data, which is a live environment. Mm-hmm. And the example
0: of building a Robin Hood for a different geo, like if I want to build Robin Hood for Ireland,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Alpaca, first of all, why doesn't Robin Hood do that at already? Like, what's new about somebody being able to build a new
1: Robin Hood for X? So I think, like, even though people say it's a Robin Hood for X, it should not look like literary Robin Hood, right? Because the Robin Hood was designed that way because that was specifically targeted for the specific persons in the United States. And if you think about it, if you go outside the United States, the money-related thing is extremely cultural thing. I think, like, you know, forty percent, fifty percent of the deposits or like the money that's being held by individuals actually invested in something. In Japan, it's only ten percent, and if you go to Europe, probably like twenty percent or something. So, the mindset for the money and investing is very different. Which means, in order to target that kind of different people, you cannot provide similar, exact same app to push you to trade something. So, you cannot just copy and paste and become successful. You need to understand, like, really who's actually using that from that country, from that culture. Hmm. So. And in order to do that, you know, Vlad and Baiju, you know, obviously like both of them came from different countries, but like, you know, that's their playground. Sorry, what did you just say? Uh, Vlad and Baiju, the founders of the Robin Hood. Oh, okay. You know, they they mainly locate in the United States, understand mainly about the people in the United States and millennials. Right. Not in the people in Ireland. Probably the person in Ireland understands much better about what's going on in the millennials or population in Ireland. Mm-hmm.
0: Now... The critique of Robinhood was sort of that, oh my goodness, Robinhood is actually executing trades on their back end in a way that clears them much more margin than E-Trade or one of these other UIs that is not so millennial friendly. Now that's kind of a critique we all saw coming. Like, of course, you know, you're giving millennials, you're giving naive millennials a mobile interface for buying and selling stocks. Obviously, you're going to get ripped off on the transactions cost. But presumably, you know, you're you're a millennial. You should be buying and holding. You're not a day trader. The story is a little bit different for you. You probably have to be comfortable with a little bit lower
1: margins, right? Because you're building, you're dealing with a more savvy customer. I'm glad that you asked me that because that's what's so called I think conversation around payment for order flow. Uh-huh. And I see a lot of uh, conspiracy articles coming from journalists, which are oh, yeah. not necessarily true. About Robinhood? No, about what those journalists said as the conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory about Robinhood? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I have a huge respect to Baiju and Vlad building Robinhood. And I like we of course know what they do because like, you know, that's our industry and how the micro market structure works behind the scene is, you know, pretty complex and it's pretty unique in the U S stock markets. There's a, you know, same thing as crypto market. There's a maker fee, taker fee, and there's a 50 exchanges in the United States. They're fighting each other to get the liquidity from the users. So they use different type of the, you know, incentives called maker fee, taker fee, posting the liquidity. You basically give the money back. And if the user takes the liquidity, you charge fees. And there's a middleman called market makers, wholesale market makers. They collect all those flows and try to make money from the different incentives coming from different exchanges. So for those market, wholesale market makers, if they have more flows of trades, they can have more opportunities to make money by utilizing the exchange rebate structure. So that's where us, Alpaca, or Robinhood, or even E-Trade, or TD Ameritrade, they send trades to wholesale market makers, and we receive some kind of basically introducing fee. What that is called as payment for order flow. And this, it's all disclosed in a regular regulatory report called 606 report. How much we are receiving from those wholesale mar- market makers and who we are receiving from. And this is nothing different from Robinhood or E-Trade or Alpaca or TD Ameritrade or any other broker dealers that's out there. So, I think you know people talk about you know zero commission and like you know Robinhood is doing some you know sh- you know weird thing, but it's not necessarily true because like you know they're doing exact same thing. But The Robinhood went zero commission, so I think like a lot of genres wanted to pick on what the all the broker dealer, like I would say all, but like most broker dealers do on the end. right? And Robinhood just unfortunately got picked on because like you know they went zero commission, but now everyone's went zero commission trade, including you know all those other existing broker dealers, and they do the exact same thing as what the Robinhood does because commission is your sugar on top like they're making exactly. a margin regardless. Exactly. So that that is a weird part, right? Like you know you are you know Facebook makes money on the back end by selling ads. And existing broker dealers what you used to do is like they also charge you to use Facebook. <laughs> right. I was like what is this, you know?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So Robin did have an innovation with the Zero Commission
1: and then they, they changed the market essentially. Yeah, yeah. And as as a pocket, like as you said, like you know, because we deal with more sophisticated audience, we are very transparent. Like you know, we explain this is how we make money and this is how it works on the back end.
0: As you build up more volume, do you get better margins because you're selling to market makers in higher volume and you have economies of scale?
1: Yeah, economy of the scales is more, comes with the internalization of the, what we do as a company. So basically, like, you know, I think the same thing as, a, I think of this more of the cloud business, right? You know, Box or Dropbox, I think like they used to use Amazon, AWS. But eventually, they changed that to their own server internally. Because it's a better margin, better control, more control. It's a similar thing. Right. Some stack, like, you know, we don't own it. If you really internalize that, yes, there's a better profit margin. And why you want to do that? Because there are more volume. It makes sense economically.
0: Right. And what does that look like? So if Alpaca
1: becomes gigantic, do you eventually want to build a market maker business? Not necessarily. Again, like our vision is really middleware for investing in general. Uh So U.S. stocks is not the only thing that we want to do. What we want to do is connect as many different time of the niche asset classes into one. Uh. So that's more priority for us. So mm. like, you know, not necessarily going super deep into one thing may not be our focus.
0: Is the equivalent business to this in crypto? Is that market already saturated? Like, I, my sense is that there's already a lot of APIs for doing crypto trading.
1: I agree. And I think the reason why for that is crypto industry in nature, is built by software developers. And traditional assets were built by finance guys. And I think that that is why the thing like Alpaca really did not exist until Alpaca in the stock side.
0: Does your back end look in any way like, you know, like what, what Plaid had to do in the early days where basically it was really duct tape and chicken wire, like very janky. You know, the, the programmatic interface, the user interface is fantastic. You're like, wow, it's a magical API for connecting me to banks. But what they were actually doing, like I think it's like spinning up a VM and like literally logging in to, a, to your bank and like scraping the screen, like really weird stuff. Are there any parts of integrating with the financial landscape that feel like that? Like really, really old,
1: janky stuff you have to do that makes you a little bit sick inside? Oh, yeah. Every single day. Oh, Every single God. moment. Oh, oh. Like what? Well, like, you know, even like, you know, syncing like those accounting, right? Like, you know, who has how much money and all those things are reporting end of day, start of day with, uh, you know, CSVs and, you know, some FTP server, Ooh. like, you know, Ooh. file conversion, Like, you know, we get some notification through emails because there's no API connection. Yeah, like it's countless amount of the things that we have to do manually, which we automate a heck out of it on our side. But connecting to those people is always a pain. Do those automations break? It's a system. So, you know, there's a risk that, you know, may break. So that's why we have to be extremely careful. Like, you know, our system is a very mission critical system. So we really care about that. Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you remember that company, uh, what was it, night yes night trading or Knight Knight, capital? Knight capital? Yeah. I mean, that is like the ultimate example of like Exactly I guess unit test or t- exactly. I don't know, what's the lesson from that? Like night capital. It was literally like they had some algorithm that they thought was trading in one direction. It was actually trading in the other direction, or yep. like buying tons and tons of securities and just the company went underwater thanks to an algorithm
1: misconfigured and that's actually a human error human error of not updating one of the eight servers that they missed to supposed to, they supposed to upgrade and the guy who was supposed to be monitoring that thing is seems to be out for like you know a few hours or a few days <laughs> right because there he was traveling <laughs> on vacation and didn't have a network or something so it's extremely human error don't do that exactly that's we introduced those cases to all our, you know, employees and staffs, because we deal with this mission critical system, and the human era actually creates that kind of things, like you know, disaster. So we need to have a culture that we understand this could happen. So every single thing that we do has to be extremely, you know, careful. At the same time, as a tech company, we have to move fast. So creating the value as a company ourselves has been basically has to come from both sides, tech side and having understanding of there's extremely long-tail risk that this one thing could blow up everything.
0: What do you think about the potential of the crypto ecosystem? So like there's this term DeFi, decentralized finance. And I think it's the idea that you have a permissionless crypto ecosystem where You're unlocking the potential for anybody to have access to, first of all, obviously crypto assets, but then, you know, the idea of DeFi, I think, is that you put synthetic assets that track, you know, Coca-Cola stock or McDonald's stock or whatever. You put those synthetic assets into the crypto ecosystem and allow anybody in India or wherever to buy these things essentially in an unregulated fashion. I mean, synthetics like Abra does that? Yeah. I guess more broadly, like, what do you think of the potential of crypto to make trading infrastructure more seamless or permissionless? Does that matter? I mean, can we get everything? We, you're talking about Alpaca unlocking the potential to bring U.S. products, U.S. financial products, or just better financial products to the rest of the world. Do we even need the crypto ecosystem to quote unquote decentralize this kind of stuff or is it naturally getting liberated by apis and infrastructure
1: that's very good question and i'm a big fan of decentralization i went to and like you know i'm a big fan of it at the same time i'm also i also saw the strength of having very strong regulation as well because what happened in last couple years in the basically ico or ieo or (laughs) you know crypto trading and you know it's really the history repeats itself rhymes itself looking at what the us existing securities market experienced since 1933 and if you read the history all those things that happened in the ico or those you know scam in the crypto happened in the past so eventually that has to be stopped and that's why like you know there's a you know the governments moving like you know to figure that things out so I think the, any ways of uh, doing that kind of thing, I think it will be commingled into one anyway. So, like, you know, the, the concept of synthetic is not new. Using like, you know, synthetic, you know, credit default swap that has been there before Lehman. <laughs> and that's why, like, you know, risk and is so from. huge. Yeah. So I don't see there's anything new, but it just has to be streamlined in a right way mm-hmm. and combined into the one process so that there's more efficiency. And I think just, you know, using that kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a crypto, it's more of the like, you know, blockchain. And I guess like some of the digital way to do that is just one of the methods that we can use. But the problem that we are uh, trying to tackle is to make this whole thing accessible as possible to anywhere in the world. And I think, you know, whatever it works, we have to try it
0: is there even anything practical about it though like i mean crypto like i get the decentralization i like the decentralized gold use case i like the decentralized
1: store of value case so hence bitcoin only hence bitcoin only like
0: is the rest of it complete madness do we need decentralized computation do we need decentralized smart contracts do we need any of this stuff like it's cool don't get me wrong but a lot of it what's cool about it is the permissionless factor And you could build 99% of the permissionless use cases with APIs if the right API providers were there. Like, that's one one reason I think Alpaca is pretty cool. That's one reason I think Stripe is really cool. And the other 1% is illegal. So it's going to get cracked down on anyway. Like, even if it's crypto. Crypto. Do we need any of this stuff? Is crypto does it matter?
1: Yeah, I think like, you know, the making the fractionals possible has been probably like as you said, like, you know, fractional money transfer or like, you know, owning something fractional is something that like you're you're talking about, like, you know, this blockchain and the you know crypto has been pretty good because it becomes like really cheap cost. But yeah, you're right. Like, you know, a lot of players trying to solve that problem without using crypto or blockchain. Nowadays, so, so let's see how it goes. And it's probably yeah. doable, yeah. right? Like, I mean, it'll be, it's fun to watch.
0: It's yeah. so fun to watch.
1: Yeah. yeah. I
0: mean, if all of this stuff, if in 10 years, 15 years, we look back like, what, what were we thinking? Like, why did we, what, blockchain? What, what were, I mean, we're all going to have some Bitcoin. It's going to have gone up like 15% yeah. in 10 years. Yeah. And we'll be like, I, like, I'm glad it retained its value. Like, you know, that was great. Man, that was a fever dream. We all went crazy for a little while and just didn't realize we don't need decentralization for almost
1: anything. Yeah, I mean, like you know, that concept itself has been there. Like you know, FX is always decentralized. There is no like you know centralized mm. FX stock market, right? Like you know, there's no exchange. It's always like multiple liquidity providers, like you know, doing that thing. So like the, the concept has been always there. And the, the same thing as the U.S. stock market, like you know, there's a you know 50 exchanges there, and there's a regulation. But like you know, there's a regulation to make sure that price, like regardless of where it comes from, has to be kept at certain level. That's called NBBO or best execution policy, national best and offer. Mm-hmm. So you know, people actually build the technology to sync. It's a you know big data problem, right? Like parallel distributed problem. Like you know, there's a multiple things, but it has to work simultaneously. Yeah. So, yeah, like you know, there's technology happening to make that thing work. So like, you know, that concept and the problem is always there. So yeah. Decentralization, it's cool. And, you know, it's already happening, even before crypto, maybe. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Hilarious. Okay, we gotta wrap up. It's really cool what you're building.
0: And the trajectory is also really cool. It's one of those things where, you know, your career has really taken a lot of twists and turns to get to where you are. And and the twists and turns are hilarious. What's the biggest risk to Alpaca? What is the thing that keeps you up at night? What is the tail risk that could cause this business to fail? Because it seems like, I mean, I don't know of another business that does this. Maybe if maybe somebody is listening and they know of another stock trading API, or maybe you know of another one. But it's the first time I've seen this. It seems pretty cool. But what's the biggest risk to this business not working out?
1: I always think about people who doing this thing. Because if you are extremely tech side of the persons only, then you wouldn't probably think too much about that tail risk that you see in the financial service, you know, financial market side of the thing. So and if you are coming from extremely just financial services side of the thing, you don't understand how open source this has to be, how developer friendly this has to be and how liberated this has to be. So I think in order to like the what scares me at night is probably are we leading, you know, this whole thing with the right values? to make sure that everyone understands the risk, but at the same time, we are you know, pushing in the right direction while understanding the risk. So I think that that is something that I worry about it all the time. Yoshi, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking. No, thank you very much, Jeff.